Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, what needs to be done to improve our declining water quality? Well, we'll find out. And farmer and journalist Dara McCullough tells us about his green life. Of course, we'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But it's time to head down to earth now, beginning with our weekly news roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, the Weekly Planet with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Craig, where in the UK are you this week? Well, Cara, hello. I'm uh, visiting Cornwall Wildlife Trust this week. And so uh, I'm speaking to you today from Falmouth, the beautiful little harbour town of Falmouth. And my hotel is right by the harbour in Falmouth. So if you hear any uh, gulls in the background uh, that's what's going on. So but great to be speaking to you. <laughs> don't be concerned about the screaming. Ironically, we we both got struck down with COVID last week in spite of doing all our broadcasts remotely. So I don't know if our our contagion passed through the airwaves, but we're, we're back in fighting form this week to talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. How about a COVID-related story to celebrate our respective recoveries, Craig? Yeah, well, I don't know whether celebration is the word, <laughs> Kawa. Um, but there was a paper in Nature this week that has said that a, a new study suggested that some 40% of horseshoe bats across Asia have yet to be formally described. Now, why is this related to COVID? Well, it is actually that, of course, horseshoe bats are considered a big reservoir of the many zoonotic viruses which jump from animals to people including the close relatives of, of the viruses that caused COVID. And uh, it is thought that most scientists think at the moment that the most likely cause and source of COVID was that it jumped from bat species in Southeast Asia, perhaps into another animal, uh, and then uh, from that animal into humans, or perhaps directly into humans. So we know uh, that the wild species have always been this huge reservoir of billions and billions of viruses, uh, but bats in particular have often been a repository of a lot of viruses that, that, that then transfer into humans. So um, we've said on the uh, Weekly Planet before that, you know, in many respects, COVID is uh, the way in which for most people in the in rich countries is the first way in which the ecological crisis has really touched us in a way that we can really recognise. Uh, and it is actually a symptom of that ecological crisis. It's been warned for decades that the, by scientists that the more we cut into and fragment and erode wildlife habitat, the more of these zoonotic escapes we should we were likely to see in terms of uh, disease transfers from wildlife populations into humans. So this is very significant, actually, that it's thought that 40% of these bat species are yet to be described, because actually the more that scientists get to know about the bat species out there, and of course the viruses that they may harbour, uh, then it's better to try and prevent future uh, diseases. But of course, the real thing to do to prevent more uh, pandemics like COVID is, is make sure that we learn to live in harmony with nature and stop eroding wildlife habitat. You know, this was a study that was actually published in the Frontiers of Ecology and Evolution originally, and they used this term that I'd never heard before, which was hidden or cryptic species is what they called them. I like that term a lot. And it's animals that seem to belong to the same species, but they're actually genetically distinct. And it seems like as our abilities to analyze, you know, mitochondrial DNA that comes from the mother and all those kind of technologies to analyze data uh, and DNA are, are coming forward that actually we're, we're able to break these species up into more species, which which maybe seems like just an excuse to add more Latin names to the, to the, to the system, or I'm not sure, but, but uh, I thought, I thought it was really interesting. As if scientists would just want to add more Latin names. Because uh, <laughs> you're Latin. If, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. Look, there is a key point here. Is that this isn't that scientists are going out there and I, I suddenly identifying these extra species of bats. What, it, what there is, is, as you say, it's this genetic sequencing, and particularly looking at mitochondrial DNA, helps them kind of identify where there's, uh, likely to be uh, additional species uh, which haven't yet been identified by science. So that's what this research has has been doing. And you're right, there is always a huge debate among scientists is, is what makes a species, you know, I mean, the, the, the term that you normally learn uh, when you're at school is that, uh, you know, a species is basically uh, uh, animals that sort of will mate together 
but not with another species. You know, that's mm -hmm. the key point. But actually, when you get into subspecies and so on, it, it becomes quite a big scientific debate is what counts as a different species and, and uh, actually what are just subspecies. Um, and ultimately, uh, yes, a lot of scientists have a lot of fun with lots of Latin names through the process. But actually, what, well, what it does matter is exactly for this kind of issue is that if there's enough distinction between two different types of bats, for example, that they might be different species or different subspecies, if then they harbour different varieties of viruses, uh, well, then that starts to matter, doesn't it, to us as humans. So that's why it's important to understand the complexity of the, the biodiversity that's out there. Yeah, really good point. The next story you brought me was, was also from Nature this week. It's a news feature about a chemical plant in China's Henan province that that's set to become the world's largest facility for recycling carbon dioxide into fuel. And and this was quite a technical article that I read, qu quite extensive too. And, and I guess I'm always a little suspicious of dirty industries that are suddenly announcing that they're solving climate change. So is this good news or greenwash, Craig? Well, I think you're right to be suspicious. Um, I mean, you know, what you're seeing a lot of uh, going on in industry around the world at the moment is thinking, uh, how can they turn uh, carbon dioxide into useful products? And that can be fuel, uh, believe it or not, or plastics made from carbon dioxide, or all kinds of other uh, uh, products. Now that sounds good. And, you know, if it's done in a way that genuinely is good for the climate, well, great. Uh, that is normally when it's dependent on using lots of renewable energy to make it. So, you know, you, the last thing is if, you, if you're burning more coal to turn this CO2 into uh, useful products, then obviously it's not going to be good for the climate. So it's got to be based on uh, cheap renewable energy to make this happen. Um, and, you know, particularly if it's byproducts of another industrial process, will that be useful? Um, but there is a lot of question marks about whether how useful this will be. And of course, the concern is that it could be that it just sort of perpetuates uh, business as usual for even longer. Um, and uh, or even worse, that it could create new new industrial processes that just add to the problem. There was one expert summed this up rather well, I thought, an expert from Imperial College London. He said, the assumption that we can fix this climate change problem is an economically attractive, in an economically attractive, easy way, is at best is naive and at worst is actively disingenuous. So I think there is quite a lot of uh, scepticism out there. But at the end of the day, you know, if we can make concrete that actually uh, absorbs more carbon dioxide than it is used to produce it, that broadly is uh, probably going to be a good thing. But it, as ever, uh, Carl, it all depends on the nuances. Yeah, it's a really hotly debated subject at the moment. And I noticed that the 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 plant that says that they're going to start to do this in China was saying we'll recycle about 160,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year, which is the equivalent to the emissions from tens of thousands of cars, which sounds amazing. But then when you read the fine print, that's, that's a little over two minutes worth of annual global carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to solve climate change. But but I was really interested to see the projections for this this sector really is that right now it's amounting to less than one billion US dollars for the market for these kind of products. But but the prediction is that it'll grow to 70 billion dollars in 2030 and then 550 billion dollars for 2040. So I guess if you were looking to invest some money, these kind of carbon capture and sequestration and, and upcycle of, of carbon dioxide could be a, a, a real potential new industry. Yeah, it could be. Um, and, you know, it could be very exciting. The issue is just all, uh, you know, we never really know what the opportunity cost is, if you like, what the alternative reality could be. So, for example, I was saying before, given the example of making concrete that, that uses up CO2 uh, in the manufacture, which would be, you know, useful if it stores that. But equally, does that mean we're just stuck in, old thinking that what we need as a building material is concrete. Does that kind of stop us thinking about using exciting new materials, like, like amazing things happening at the moment in uh, uh, new types of wood and, and uh, engineered wood products for use in modern construction, uh, and that can actually replace concrete in many ways and arguably would, would be more sustainable than even uh, concrete that sucks up carbon dioxide, as it were. So the danger about this is that we, we actually don't innovate enough. Uh, the danger is that this keeps us sort of just making incremental innovations to industrial processes and the materials we use, rather than going for the real transformations we need. So I think it's it's useful. It's a useful step forward as long as it doesn't keep us stuck uh, where we where we currently are, uh, rather than innovating properly. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Some of the detractors mentioned in the article were saying that you know some of this is just to create kind of 
boutique items for climate conscious shoppers like uh, you can actually create vodka or diamonds or mm. or some of these like more products more consumerism and that it even could lead to this idea of a rebound effect for example one of the things they can do is create a, a jet fuel out of this recycled carbon dioxide but that will make people feel like oh I can fly more actually or I can use more carbon dioxide because it's all being recycled and we end up actually making the problem worse so it's a it's a risky it's a risky business. It is risky. I think, Carl, we're going to have to work this out by uh, chatting about it more over a carbon negative bottle of vodka. <laughs> that sounds good. Get your hands on one of those. So while you were using your COVID downtime to read sensible articles like this, Craig, the brain fog was real for me when I had COVID and I found myself drawn <laughs> to an article in Euro News. Uh, and this might give some of our listeners a clue regarding what it's about. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? I want to know what you got to do. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. What do we do? We swim, swim. Doreen, I'm singing. Oh, 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 I love to swim in. Doreen. When you want to swim, you want See, to See, I'm going to get stuck fun. now with that song. Now it's in my head. Sorry. That's a well-known scene from Pixar's Finding Nemo, and we're playing that because of this incredible story, actually, about goldfish, supersized goldfish threatening native species in the region of Canada. And I think someone should actually make a sci-fi movie about this. But maybe the reason that resonated with me is I actually had a goldfish when I was younger. And we lived in New Orleans and we were moving from New Orleans. And I am pretty sure my father dumped that goldfish in a canal in New Orleans. And it turns wow. out this is a really, really bad idea because this has happened in Canada. And last year, a scientist found several thousand goldfish in a stormwater pond and you know I think we normally think of goldfish as about the size of maybe a little bit bigger than a large coin or something but these goldfish are bigger than a football they are enormous I don't know if you saw the pictures of them Craig yeah they're I mean they're quite horrific I find them actually they're not they're not beautiful looking things are they when they get to the size of a uh, football no absolutely and and this is of course this is a real problem because goldfish actually are native to east asia and uh the just the same as the problem you have around the world is uh, invasive species so when you take a species from one environment and one ecosystem which is evolved and then you release it into a completely separate ecosystem uh, where perhaps it doesn't have natural predators and so on then it can cause real problems and there's so many examples of this uh, around the world of course and um, the problem with goldfish uh, released into the wild in Canada is uh, that's not where they're native. They are actually growing to this huge size. Uh, they seem to be very well suited to the environment in Canada. Um, but actually, there's a real concern that they might crowd out other uh, native species, crowd out native species in Canada. And there's such a big sort of availability of these natural resources, abundant food uh, sources in Canada's waterways. And actually, you know, uh, they are well suited to the, the warmer conditions that you get in summer in Canada, um, that they are growing in numbers and growing in size. And, you know, it's a myth, Cara, that it often is talked about that uh, goldfish will only grow uh, to a certain size relevant to the tanks that they're put in. Uh, actually, this is the point. This shows absolutely that goldfish can keep growing if the conditions are right. They grow larger and larger. And it's a real concern, as it is for so many other invasive species around the world. Yeah, they're calling these actually potentially super invaders. I didn't realize that they release these hormones that helps them regulate their size, but it also affects the fish around them. So they're they're competing even more with other fish, and then their their ability to survive in these harsh environments is is really uh, shocking. So so this particular stormwater pond, you know, it was at very low oxygen levels, very high temperatures, up to thirty degrees Celsius in the summer, um, very shallow water, and yet there were twenty thousand of them living in this pond. So you know they can really outcompete and outperform the native fish that, that can survive in, in those conditions. And of course, as the climate is changing, we're going to get more extreme conditions like that. So we're going to see these these goldfish really push out these, these native fish. It's just in incredible when you look at all the systemic effects from one little tiny innocuous looking species that we have in our in our fish tanks. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's worth sort of saying that there's two principal ways in which invasive species cause problems for native species. The one that sort of everyone's familiar with is that they might go around eating <laughs> eating other species. And actually, you know, goldfish do eat. What, what do they eat in the world? Well, they eat uh, insects and small crustaceans and smaller fish, as well as aquatic plants and decaying plants and animal matter and so on. 
But actually, as much as anything, as exactly as you're saying, Cara, the, the real point is, is they might be more successful in that environment than uh, certain native species, which will have evolved together, you know, a whole assemblage of native species will have evolved together and sort of each have their own niche. But the problem is, in this case, goldfish might come in and actually uh, almost assume the whole of this new uh, environment as their niche and be able to exploit it, pushing out the native species. And then you lose that diversity of species in the ecosystem that are so important. So it is a concern and it, and it just goes to show that, you know, much as your maybe your dad did uh, flush your goldfish away, uh, many, many people do that, but it's obviously not, uh, not the best thing to do. Um, and we see this problem right around the world. You know, there's actually been problems um, in the past, I know in some American cities, uh, you know, there's been issues, hasn't there, with alligators and so on that have been flushed down loos and things like that. And in the UK, you know, we have an issue with grey squirrels, actually, in reverse, if you like. Uh, our grey squirrels in the UK come from Canada originally, and they have pushed out the native red squirrels uh, that are native to the UK. So, you know, uh, this is an issue right around the world in so many different places. Huge problem, of course, in countries like Australia, uh, where we've actually seen a, a huge amount of um, animals that have gone there that originally came from Europe. And again, have caused the extinction of many of the native species in Australia as well. Yeah, I'm going to have to share the the image of this on my social media feed to try and inspire that sci-fi movie that I'm sure will be a blockbuster. But thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly big news, Craig. Great. Speak next week, Carl. Absolutely. After the break, we'll find out how agriculture is impacting our water quality. Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. Don't forget you can get in touch about anything on the show by emailing us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But if you wanted one clear indicator that Ireland is not moving in an environmentally sustainable direction, I think you need look no further than our water quality as even the government of Ireland states that the country is now experiencing a quote-unquote sustained decline in water quality with only half of our rivers, lakes and estuaries achieving healthy status. And the Environmental Protection Agency has actually said that the main threat to water quality is the presence of too much nutrients coming from agriculture and wastewater. So joining me to discuss this problem and hopefully how to solve it are Antoshka's natural environmental officer, Elaine McGough, and Chagas head of the Department of Environment, Soils and Land Use, Dr. Carl Richards. Hi, Elaine and Carl. Hi, Carl. You know, we think of our beautiful green fields as being both green in color and also hopefully green in respect to their environmental impact. But really, to what extent are our agricultural practices contributing to this water pollution and and how exactly? Okay, so I suppose the EPA have highlighted both uh, industrial sources and wastewater and agriculture as the dominant sources of of water pollution. the main causes of that are excess nutrients, but also sediment, which has a precursive uh, effect on on our uh, on the biology in those rivers as well. So nutrients coming from pesticide, fertilizer, uh, slurry. What's the predominant so, source here? Yeah, so it's it, it's a mixture, and it's going to be a mixture of fertilizer, manure sources, but also the soil itself. The soil itself has a lot of nutrients in it, so all of these combine to result in nitrogen and phosphorus being lost to water. But of course, we have all of these regulations, like the Water Framework Directive, like the Nitrates Directive, and yet the situation is getting worse. So what's actually happening? Well, the most recent EPA report has uh, indicated that river quality has actually improved to 57%, where it was 53% in the last monitoring period. So there's a slight increase. Um, so but what is happening? There's multiple things happening. So you've got agricultural pressure changes and you've also got climate changes. And uh, the research that we've done has highlighted that both of these are involved in changes in both nitrogen and phosphorus levels in our rivers. So Elaine Antoshka has been quite critical about the government's recent efforts regarding nitrate pollution, yet Carl is saying actually water quality has improved slightly. What do you think is happening and are they getting it right or getting it wrong? Yeah, um, I'm interested to hear Carl say that because the EPA also say that nitrate and phosphate river pollution is increasing in, in by 38% and 24% respectively. So there have been some improvements, but the EPA themselves say that they've been overshadowed by the disimprovements. Um, and although wastewater does absolutely play a role, agriculture is very much the 
the, the main pressure. And the EPA have highlighted that it's strongly linked to increasing agricultural intensification, particularly in the south and the southeast of the country where dairy intensification is, is, is most prevalent. We've increased our dairy cow population by over 50% since 2010, and fertilizer has increased by nearly 40% in the same time period. So really, it's it goes, it's um, water pollution is just increasing in lockstep with dairy intensification. So we have the nitrates directive, which is supposed to be protecting against some of this stuff. What is happening that what's not working with that that's that's causing this to get worse? Yeah, well, a lot of research shows us that what we need is the right measure in the right place. And that depends on the soil type and the slope and the weather. Um, but what we have to address it is the nitrates action program. It, it stems from the nitrates directive. It's basically the rules and regulations that farmers have to abide by. But the problem is that they generally take a one size fits all approach. Um, despite the, the widespread acknowledgement that we need tailored solutions. Um, and what we are seeing is that a lot of the measures that are being uh, proposed aren't working and that the government have acknowledged that themselves. They said that the, our last nitrates action program did not address water quality issues. But instead of, of looking at those quite critically and putting in very ambitious measures, which is what we need, um, we would see them as, as more kind of tinkering around the edges and we haven't been provided a solid evidence base. They, they've introduced some new measures, but there's no solid evidence base to say, these are, are the measures that are going to work. They might help a little bit, but we're in a water quality crisis. We need to be confident that the measures that are being put in place are actually going to work. Yeah, Carl, you, you'll know this because when I came to Chagas once upon a time to do my PhD, I actually, I came over to Europe because, you know, I, I knew that Europe was much more progressive on agri-environmental issues and I wanted to learn from Europe's examples so I could bring this back to the US. And then I discovered this word called derogation. Uh, and it turned out that, that Ireland wasn't really implementing a lot of these EU rules like the nitrates directive and that they were instead applying for derogation. So can you explain to someone who's never heard that term or doesn't know what it means, can you explain what that means? Okay, so within the nitrates directive regulations that the EU introduced, they introduced it to reduce nitrate loss to water. Okay, and that was primarily from arable land in the likes of the Netherlands and Denmark, etc., where there was huge losses of nitrate occurring at times of the year where you didn't have a crop growing. That regulation allowed for what's called a derogation, which is where your land use was significantly different, where you had a permanent crop growing all of the time on your soil, which was uptaking nitrogen into that crop. So the EU allowed for a derogation, which was to allow stocking rates of up to 250 kilograms of organic N per hectare, which is about, or was about equivalent to three livestock units, so three cows per hectare. It's now a bit less than that because there have been changes to uh, the excretion rates by the animals. Um, so Ireland used that because, you know, when you look at our, our growing uh, conditions, some of the country has growing days of about 330 days in the year. So there, there, there is very long time periods where nutrients are required by the grass. Um, so Ireland has, has used that, but I suppose derogation can only be granted where water quality is improving. And as Elaine highlighted, and as the EPA have highlighted back in the, the 2015 to 2018 period, um, and 2018 to 2020, there was a decline in water quality. And that's related to, to multiple things, including climate, climate effects, and particularly the drought that we saw in 2018. I completely agree with Elaine, though, like what we're moving towards here is the right measure in the right place at the right time. And I think this is where Ireland is actually leading uh, within within Europe and the EPA using various tools, including some developed by ourselves, have identified 190 priority areas for action. So these are about 730 water bodies where water quality is either at a risk of not being good or isn't good. Um, that's out of so that's about 700 out of the nearly 5,000 water bodies, and within those areas, uh, Ireland um, has developed a collaborative approach, which is a with the local authority waters program, who are investigating the sources of water pollution or potential water pollution in those 700 water bodies, and then an industry slash government co-funded uh, program called the Agricultural Sustainability Support and Advisory Program 
is providing free advice to farmers in those areas on a one-to-one -one basis. So one advisor talking to one farmer about the water quality on their farm, what they need to do to help improve water quality or protect the water quality that's already on their farm where that water quality is already of good status. So really what we need to move towards it, as Elaine has said, is putting the right measure in the right place at the right time. It's completely farming system and soil type specific. Um, so a measure on a, a moderate to poorly draining soil to reduce phosphorus loss will comp be completely different to a measure on a free draining soil to reduce nitrate loss. So that's what, what Chagask and the industry are moving towards is providing that one-to-one -one advice to help farmers to really improve water quality on their farms and to achieve not just the nitrates directive, but the water framework directive goals of having good status for all waters. Elaine, uh, Antoshka was quite critical of the recent renewal of the derogation that the Minister for Agriculture announced. Do you think that, that, that this move toward the right place and you know, bespoke uh, water quality plans is, is working or what was your criticism with this new derogation? Yeah, um, I agree with Carl. The EPA have, have created some amazing tools, but the problem is that they're not legally binding. We're not seeing those being properly utilized in the measures that are being that are, are binding on, on farmers. So we have all of this information and we're not making use of it. Um, the problem is that the nitrates derogation is granted on condition it won't undermine water quality. And it depends on these measures that I've just been referring to. But if the measures aren't working, then how can the nitrates derogation be implemented safely? So, I mean, the derogation itself isn't, there's lots of farms that are problematic. It's not just the derogation farms, but we have an existing nitrate problem, like serious loads of nitrate in certain catchments. And then we're going to add, or give a license to spread even more nitrogen on that land. So it's just adding fuel to the fire. And you know, they, they, these farms are subject to stricter regulation, but it's really important to note that there is no site level assessment before these derogations are granted. Nobody's going out to these farms saying, look, this water body is incredibly sensitive. A derogation shouldn't be granted here. They just, farmers have to abide by, they have to tick certain boxes. They need to have, um, you know, sufficient slurry, uh, slurry storage. They need to spread it in a certain way. But nobody is taking a very critical look at the, the environmental sensitivities. And that just doesn't happen in any other sector in Ireland. You wouldn't get away with it. Um, and from our perspective, it's really reckless and it's not in keeping with the EU law. If, if we want to be sure that the derogation isn't going to impact on water quality, then why not do an assessment for each license that is granted to say, look, here are the safeguards, here are the sensitivities. Here is why it's not going to be a problem, but that's not happening. Carl, would you agree with that, that a site assessment uh, isn't happening in these areas with very sensitive uh, water catchments? Well, as I mentioned previously, the EPA have highlighted the 730-odd water bodies where water quality either is or could be an issue. And when, when the local authorities' water program go in and investigate, sometimes they're actually finding that the water quality isn't actually being impacted. So that, that is a move towards, as we've said earlier, about targeting the right measure in the right place um, to address the particular nutrient or pollutant of concern. So, you know, it, it, the, at a national level, we are starting to do that. But the focus is on those water bodies that have problems. So farmers are, are arguing that, that if they're part of the derogation, that they're, they're actually required to implement more additional measures to protect the environment. But at the same time, the derogation is allowing more intensive farmer, farmers to operate at a higher stocking rate, which creates additional uh, pollution. So, I mean, which, which is right here? It's, it's very confusing, I think, for, for people who aren't familiar with this stuff. It seems like there's two contradictory arguments going on. Yeah, it might seem that they're contradicting, uh, Cara, but I suppose, look, when you look at it, derogation farmers have a huge amount of rules and regulations that they have to follow um, to, to be approved or to have their derogation approved. And those, those measures are changing all of the time. So the latest you know, changes to the, to the nitrates directive have led to a reduction in the organic N loadings in those catchments because they've uh, started to increase the excretion rate for animals. They've insisted on 
or on farmers not applying uh, soiled water during the period of December, that's been gradually phased in. On you know, tillage is also a major source of nitrate. Um, historically, tillage was the, the main land use that was being, uh, I suppose, uh, implicated with high nitrates in rivers as far back as 1989. So within the, the latest uh, de derogation, tillage farmers are required to ensure uh, green cover and where they're not planting green cover in the winter, they need to stimulate uh, natural regeneration through minimum tillage or a, a small tillage event. And that again is based on, on research that we've done. But you know, th there's, there's joint challenges here uh, for not just dairy farmers, but for all farmers. So the big thing, and I think it's been discussed in, in previous podcasts, is we need, we need to start to dramatically reduce our nitrogen uh, use on farms. This is fertilizer nitrogen use. And I've heard Elaine speaking about that herself in the past. And that is really critical because it cuts across not just water quality, but greenhouse gases and ammonia emissions as well. Um, and there are a lot of things that farmers can actually start to do to reduce their dependence on what is basically a fossil fuel derived product, a very important one for, for increasing uh, biomass and growth. But uh, that, that really is a key challenge for us. And the, the latest, I suppose, changes to the derogation uh, are that farmers have to reduce their nitrogen fertilizer limits by 15%. Um, so this again is, is moving uh, farmers to below optimum or agronomic optimum fertilizer limits. Um, and that can be done uh, by introducing things like clover or multi-species swords, which again, we have a huge amount of work underway. And if you permit me for a minute, Cara, so you're familiar with uh, Johnstown Castle and the work that we do, but we have a dairy farm there that is operating at derogation levels using 65 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare on multi-species swords. It's in its fourth year now. And the yields that we are getting are similar to the very intensive uh, inorganic fertilizer uh, system uh, run at the same number of cows, et cetera. So we can dramatically reduce our nitrogen use. But unusually, the nitrates directive, and I mentioned it earlier, also deals with phosphorus. And I think we're probably one of the only member states that has phosphorus included in our nitrates directive because the nitrates directive mentions eutrophication. The original purpose for the nitrates directive was to protect human health and that was by legally implementing the drinking water limit of, of 11.3 milligrams per litre um, and more recently we're now implementing a, 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 an environmental standard of 2.6 milligrams per litre so almost 80 percent lower than that drinking water limit and that that I suppose is the challenge now that we have to face is to, to reduce eutrophication primarily in our estuaries associated with nitrogen, um, we have to reduce nitrogen losses. And, and that starts by reducing our fertilizer inputs and increasing our nitrogen use efficiency on, on all farms, not just on, on intensive dairy farms. Elaine, do, do you agree with Carl there? And, do, and what do you think needs to be done going forward to reduce water pollution from our agricultural sources? Yeah, um, we hear a lot of language about moving towards the right measure in the right place and um, ASAP, this program that Carl referred to. But the thing is that we have legally binding obligations to have good water status by 2027. We have already wasted two cycles of the river basin management plan, so like 12 odd years, where we haven't managed to improve our water quality. So we need more than a move towards or voluntary measures. We need urgent action. And what we really need to see going forward is that um, in order for intensification of farming to occur, we need proper environmental oversight and we need to know that it's not going to impact on water quality. So we need to look at the catchment as a whole and make a plan. And there's certain catchments that will have to be zoned ineligible for certain levels of agriculture. You know, each water body will only have a certain carrying capacity. And it's time we took that kind of an approach. Um, for instance, we have pig and poultry farms that require licensing but dairy farms don't. And it's time that they were, they were subject to far stricter scrutiny. And most importantly, we need a solid evidence base that the measures that are being put in place are going to work. It's been acknowledged that they've failed so far. So derogation farmers, they are subject to more rules and regulations, but those rules and regulations aren't working. So it's not safe to grant derogations environmentally. So 
what's happening is we are being asked to take a leap of faith that these new measures are going to work. There's no empirical evidence, there's no modeling evidence that it will. And this is in the face of repeated failures to, to improve our water quality. And it's worth bearing in mind that, that the CSO found that 79% of people surveyed put water pollution as being very important, one of their top environmental concerns. But the reason the public aren't being louder about this water pollution issue is that it's often invisible, it's happening below the surface. So unless you're a scientist or an angler, maybe, you won't notice that we are losing some of our most precious and sensitive species year on year. And we absolutely need very urgent and far-reaching measures to address that. That's not what we are being given. We're, given, we're being given voluntary programs. We're being given wording like a move towards. We need a very strong lever to turn this around. Well, my thanks to Elaine McGough of Ontoshka and Dr. Carl Richards of Chagas for their expertise. Up next, Dara McCullough will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, journalist, broadcaster and flower farmer Dara McCullough joins us. Hi, Dara. How are you, Cara? How's it going? You know, when I say I'm a flower farmer, immediately I win over all the fairer sex. I don't have to say anything else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it sounds like this idyllic green life to me, but it's not the, the typical product that an Irish farmer grows. So how did you get into this? Yeah, it, it is a bit of an oddball enterprise in Irish terms. And it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive to a lot of non-farmers because, of course, you know, nearly everyone has flowers in their garden, right? And it's not a big deal to grow a few flowers. Um, but to grow anything on a commercial scale um, is a totally different ballgame. How do we get into them? We got into them kind of almost by accident, actually, in the sense that Originally, uh, in the late 70s, my dad started growing onions and um, his onion enterprise got bigger and bigger to the point where we were the largest onion growers in the country uh, in the 1990s. There was very few onion growers in the country, uh, it has to be said. But because we were growing onions, we had all this specialised um, equipment. We had specialised drying sheds. We had specialised planting equipment, specialised harvesting equipment, and it was all designed to handle bulbs. And what are um, a lot of flowers but actual bulbs? So uh, he decided, you know what, I've got the hang of growing onions here. Why don't we get into uh, daffodils? Because they were a good bolt on. They basically utilised all the kit we had. And we started into daffodils. And then when I took over, uh, I made a really bad job of growing onions. I couldn't uh, compete with Dutch imports and all the rest of it. And the one thing that was working for me was the daffodils. So what I did was I gave up growing onions, concentrated on daffodils. And then when I got the hang of growing daffodils, I said, Do you know what, why are we only confining ourselves to daffodil flowers? We could be growing lilies, we could be growing gladiola, sunflower, peony, all kinds of weird and wonderful flowers. And that's what we've got into. And it's, we kind of followed... You know, customers were saying, oh, you know, your daffodils are great, but you've got nothing after basically Easter. And would you consider growing anything else? So we've kind of just been following or reacting to uh, what our customers were looking for. And uh, thankfully, so far, it's been good to us. Dara, the onions are supposed to be the easiest thing you can possibly grow. So I'm a little surprised about that. But You know what, Cara, you won't be the first um, to make that comment. But uh, all joking aside, I mean, the reason that we couldn't and there is there's maybe three onion growers left in the country um, and we import literally tens of thousands of tons of onions uh, into the country every year and, and during our season you know when there's all, also Irish onions available why why would that happen you say well the reason it happens is that onions do grow you can grow them for fun in your backyard no problem but to grow them with a perfect skin finish and to get that lovely brown, crisp, dry skin on them, you actually, in an Irish climate, you have to pump a whole load of hot air on them. Mm. And that requires gas. And that's very expensive, especially in these times. And uh, in comparison to maybe a Dutch grower, or an Italian grower or a Spanish grower who just lets them dry in the sun out in the field. 
So it, it's those fine subtleties of Irish climate and what our comparative advantages are that decide whether an enterprise exists on a scale or a commonplace within Ireland or not. And so we've got this hyper kind of, uh, not just consolidation and kind of scaling up of businesses, but also this kind of hyper specialization um, where, you know, every second farmer is either involved in beef or dairy um, and even the number of, of grain growers is shrinking. And, and that's a big concern for environmentalists because, you know, a monoculture of any sort is not really what nature wants. Yeah, I mean, we have this food security issue that, that may become even more of a problem with respect to grain and other horticultural products because of Ukraine conflict and climate change and various other things. So what do you see is the solution for boosting our horticultural sector to kind of protect us from these external risks? This is a really um, $64,000 question. Actually, you know, inflation must be a $64 million question <laughs> these days. Um, um, how do we uh, have uh, growers who are sustainable? And I, I, I mean sustainable in the most the broadest sense of the word. So sustainable from an environmental point of view, but also sustainable in terms of economically, that they're able to make a living out of it, that they don't... One of the things that kind of bothers me a little bit is this notion that to be... Um, uh, to, to survive in farming, it has to be in you, it has to be a vocation. I mean, that's okay to a point, but there also, you know, should be a living out of it, and it, it shouldn't be a kind of an accepted thing that just because you're a farmer, you're prepared to work all the hours that God sends and not have as good a living as the next fella. So um, how do we ensure that there's a good living to be made out of a diversified uh, food production base? Well, the the easy answer to that is pay more for your food. And I, I think this is where the conversation gets difficult and tricky because uh, I don't consider myself any different from the average consumer in that I go and do my shopping in the local supermarkets, whether it's Lidl or Aldi or Dunn's or anyone else. Um, even though I supply a, a farmer's market, we sell our flowers in a farmer's market. Now, um, you could accuse me of being a hypocrite in the sense that why am I supporting local producers and putting, spending my whole uh, weekly shop in the farmer's market? Well, it, there's a couple of reasons for that, but one fact that is relevant to most people is that uh, food in farmers markets tends to be a bit more expensive than in a supermarket. So people will uh, shop with their wallets uh, to a large extent and um, and the supermarket model is the cheapest way to put food in front of people. Now cheapest uh, but not necessarily the most sustainable. So you can see how this gets complicated very fast. Um, do we force people to spend more money on their food? Um, and how do we do that in order to um, encourage more localised production? Or do we just let them get their food for as cheap as possible and let the so-called world market take over and end up with a very um, limited uh, type of uh, food production base here in Ireland? And what would you like to see? Yeah, I, I, I like to. <laughs> what would I like to see? I mean, everybody would love to uh, to see a country where we're totally self sufficient. However, I think that's probably unrealistic, uh, at least in the short term. Um, as somebody who has been there and worn the T-shirt, so I have supplied supermarkets for decades. My dad supplied supermarkets. We've grown um, on a, a, a large commercial scale and we've grown on a micro scale. I've sold into farmer's markets. I sell direct from my farm. I sell. I set up a, a, an online website to you know send our flowers all over the country. So I've, I've tried and experimented with almost every system of uh, marketing farm produce. And um, I can see how um, it's going to be next to impossible for every farmer to be able to retail direct to the public. And um, that's a kind of a utopian dream. Um, so 
if you, if if every farmer can't do that, then we fall back onto the old model, the current model of you know um, big supermarkets buying in bulk and uh, selling as cheap as possible. Um, food. There's a lot of talk about food ombudsmans and fair trade and regulation office, there's a new office being set up um, to try and govern how our food is being sold. Um, again, I think that you know market realities are probably going to take over in the sense that um, you know uh, the supermarkets will do what supermarkets do. And it, you know, they're not breaking any laws um, by selling food as cheap as they can. Uh, it's just business. And I find it very hard to see a way around that. You mentioned vocations uh, earlier and, and you have multiple vocations. So you also are a, a TV broadcaster, but you, you write about agriculture and environment as a columnist for the Irish Independent. And, and I see more and more your columns are around issues of sustainability. But I think you'd probably agree with me that the agriculture versus environment debate is probably one of the most polarizing issues in Ireland and sometimes quite toxic, especially on places like Twitter. So why do you think that is? Well, um, on a lot of social media can be quite toxic, especially when it comes to when you step outside of comfort zones. So, you know, social media is great when you have a nice picture to post about, you know, look at this lovely kitten or isn't it such a gorgeous day or whatever. Yeah, flowers. Flowers is an easy one, actually. But um, when you get into real issues that um, divide public opinion, whether it's politics or food or the environment or whatever, um, it gets toxic very fast. Um, both you and I, Cara, have been on the receiving end of, uh, let's just call it for what it is, abuse um, um, from uh, people on social media who feel that they've every right to jump on and slander us and tell us that we're ignorant or irresponsible or know nothing and uh, and, and a lot worse. Um, and so... Uh, and uh, you know, there's, there's there's sinners in both camps. Um, uh, when I, and the camps I'm referring to are both uh, the producers and um, the environmentalists. And of course, the you and I know that they're kind of if they stood back from the battle lines, they'd realise that actually they kind of um, should be in the same camp because, of course, producers are acutely aware that, you know, if the environment um, falls apart, um, they can't produce. And uh, environmentalists are aware that, you know, if they don't have um, producers, they have nothing to eat. Um, And uh, we've, you know, uh, all kinds of instability follows. So um, we we need to be able to put our arms around each other, but um, we fail to do so. And I think uh, farmers uh, in particular feel... Uh, feel that they're on the defence the whole time. Um, that I, I talked about in recent years, the the feeling that a farmer gets up in the morning and sometimes feels like he's some kind of environmental terrorist because he goes out to his field of cows which are emitting methane or he goes in, steps into his tractor and uh, turns on its diesel burning engine and there's nothing he can do around the place that isn't. Uh, having a negative impact on the environment, and yet, on the other hand, um, he, you know, we don't have any way of of producing food that has zero impact. Um, so, how do we minimise that? And so, in my opinion, the the sweet spot is where we can both meet halfway. In other words, that farmers squeeze the impact of their activities, the 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 footprint and the emissions and everything else that uh, all the other negative externalities of farming, that they squeeze that down as much as possible. Um, And that environmentalists um, also accept that uh, we don't live in a perfect world. And, you know, at this point in time, it's impossible to produce milk out of a carbon neutral cow. She she creates emissions. She belches, um, and uh, those emissions go up into the sky. Um, and you know, there's no other way we have of producing milk at this point in time. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I liked what Daniel Murray from the Sunday Business Post said recently that, they, that he felt there was no such thing as farmer bashing, that this is just interrogation of a sector, just like we interrogate aviation and we interrogate the burning of coal and that it's really, you know, a science problem. But yet you've written that you think there's an environmental jihad against live, livestock farmers, which is quite a strong uh, word. Like, do you really think that, that that is actually a jihad, that they are being terrorized by environmentalists or anything like that? Well, if you speak to farmers, and I've taken quite a bit of flack for the use of that phrase, and, you know, uh, uh, jihad doesn't necessarily have to be a violent uh, mission. It's, a, it's, a, it's where basically somebody has a deep-seated belief that uh, they are, their way is the right way. Um, and so um, I think that was what I was trying to articulate, that... We have these two camps um, who feel that uh, their way is the right way and um, that there isn't room for compromise. And so um, uh, if you speak to farmers, they do feel um, like um, they're they're afraid to stick their heads up above the parapet. And when you compare it to maybe farming to maybe aviation or the the energy sector or whatever, um, they're very different, actually, in the sense that uh, farmers are generally sole traders, uh, small operators, self-employed, doing the same thing they've done um, since they started their careers and the same thing their fathers um, and grandfathers did before them. Um, you know, an attack on or a debate uh, with the aviation sector tends to be with CEOs and chief financial officers and representatives of, of the sector. So um, farmers, when, when somebody attacks a farmer... Uh, it's quite personal, yeah. It's not that uh, somebody is attacking their business in the farmer's mind. They're attacking how they, uh, their way of life. And so you can maybe understand and appreciate how farmers take this very personally um, and do feel that they're being um, targeted repeatedly. And, um, and, and, you know, I'd be the first to stand up and say that, you know, farming has a big job of work ahead of it um, it needs to change and it is changing but it, it doesn't happen overnight and you need to give people a chance um, and try and bring them with you rather than um, kind of constantly criticising well, let's hope that you and I can bridge that gap going forward my thanks to Dara McCullough for that insight into his green and floral life And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Russo, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the series on podcasts for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, we'll be exploring the insect apocalypse. But until then, stay curious.